Turn with me to Hosea chapter 11 as we continue our study in the book of Hosea. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 11 of this chapter. So Hosea 11, 1 through 11. Before we go to God's word, let us go to him again in prayer and ask for his help. Let's pray. Our Lord Jesus, as we come to your word, we pray that you would be with us, that you would open our hearts to hear from your word, that we would see our sin and be convicted of it, that we would see our Savior and find rest. We pray this in your holy name. Amen. So when I was reading through this, we have this picture here in Hosea 11 of the picture of a child and the picture of a father taking care of that child. And we've had this picture even the last couple of chapters. We've had a little bit of it in 9, we've had it in 10, and it made me think of the difference between a child who is blessed versus a child who is spoiled. And before I had children, many years ago, before we had children, it was really easy for me to identify a spoiled child. Spoiled children were given too many things by their parents, they weren't disciplined and so forth, and I always said, when I have children, I'm not going to spoil them, I'm going to parent them the right way, right? I mean, if you guys have heard that before, and then I had three kids, and my definition of spoiled changed quite a bit. Because deciding how much to give your child isn't always easy, because you only want the best for them. And as they age, their need for independence and my need to still be there for them and with them is a little, are a little bit at odds. And discipline always isn't so plain either. It always takes godly wisdom to know when and how to discipline your kids, especially when most days I'm still wondering if I'm still a kid, right? When did I become an adult? How did that even happen? When I look at my children now, I don't look at them and think spoiled. I look at them and I think blessed. I'm sure that some may disagree, but when I look, I think and I see God's blessing on our family. And so as we move into Hosea 11 today, we have a picture here of blessed children of God the nation of Israel, acting as spoiled children. God the Father is the perfect Father, treating them as the perfect Father should, never wrong in the way that he deals with his children. There are lots of lessons in parenting in this passage, actually. And for the first time, as reading it this this past week, I saw that. But there's a lot here for any believer, to be sure, as we at times behave as if we were spoiled rather than the blessed people of God. And we see God's persistent in his, persistence in his relationship with us, which is really the, the driving point of the entirety of Scripture. God's persistence with his people is made manifest in the coming of his son Jesus, which we also see in this passage as well. So as we look at this passage, we're going to break it into three ideas. First, the persistent father. Then the wayward child, and then lastly, the great homecoming. And so with that, let's look together at the text, Hosea chapter 11, verses 1 through 11. Please stand with me in the honor of the reading of God's holy word. Hosea 11, 
verse 1. When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. The more they were called, the more they went away. They kept sacrificing to the Baals and burning, and burning offerings to idols. Yet it was I who taught Ephraim to walk. I took them up by their arms, but they did not know that I healed them. I led them with cords of kindness, with the bands of love, and I became to them as one who eases the yoke on their jaws and bent down to them and fed them. They shall not return to the land of Egypt, but Assyria shall be their king, because they have refused to return to me. The sword shall rage against their cities, consume the bars of their gates, and devour them because of their own counsels. My people are bent on turning away from me, and though they call out to the Most High, he shall not raise them up at all. How can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I hand you over, O Israel? How can I make you like Adma, and how can I treat you like Zebulun? My heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. I will not execute my burning anger. I will not again destroy Ephraim. For I am God and not a man, the Holy One in your midst, and I will not come in wrath. They shall go after the Lord, and he will roar like a lion. When he roars, his children shall come trembling from the west. They shall come trembling like birds from Egypt and like doves from the land of Assyria. And I will return them to their homes, declares the Lord. Amen. This is God's word. You may be seated. So just for some context, the picture of Israel as the blessed child is really all over in this book. And we've seen several instances of it in the last week, in the last few weeks. In chapter 9, we read of them that God found them in the wilderness and it was like finding grapes in the wilderness, that it was a blessing to find them, not because they were particularly lovely, but because of the grace of God in their lives. Last week in 10, we read that Israel was a luxuriant vine, but only because they had the perfect vine dresser, Israel was able to outpace its neighbors because of the blessing of God alone. So when we get to 11, the backdrop is the idea that Israel is a child that has been given everything and anything they could possibly ever want. And there's no other rational way, or there is no rational understanding for the way that Israel acts then. We all know children who have been given much, but act in very much the opposite way of grateful. They act as if they've never been given anything, or as if they've never been taught how to behave. As adults, we demonstrated that in our upbringing some more than others. And now as parents, for many of us, we've been able to watch ourselves be raised again in the picture of our own children. And when our children act out, we think, have I spoiled them? And I always remember Jesus' words in Matthew 7 as he's dealing with this idea. And he says, he asks kind of the rhetorical question. He says, which one of you, if your son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? And he follows up with this. He says, if, if you then who are evil, speaking of the people there, if you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask Him? 
So that is the real tension in our text today. That understanding. The, a loving father. A loving father who wants his best for his, he wants the best for his children and has only ever given them the absolute best to see them squander it away and to walk away from him continually. And now he's left with this difficult choice that to discipline his child. But he does so with a love that we as humans can't possibly comprehend. More than any other passage in Scripture, I think this shows us the father's heart for a wayward child. And that brings us to the first point, the persistent father. Look with me again at verse 1. When Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. This verse is probably worth its own sermon, really, because it's deep connection to the New Testament in many, many ways. We're just going to spend a few minutes here. In Matthew's Gospel, Matthew records Jesus' family and their flight to Egypt, Joseph and Mary and the baby Jesus. Herod, king, the king of the area at the time, wanted to kill all the male children in Israel in order to stop the Christ from being born. He had read this prophecy concerning the coming of the Christ and saw all the signs and wanted to com- com- completely keep Christ from being born, and so he wanted to kill all the male children in order to protect his own reign as Rome's puppet. And Jesus' family fled to Egypt, and they remained there until Herod's death. And Matthew rightly attributes this as this fulfillment of the prophecy here in Hosea's chapter 11, verse 1, out of Egypt I called my son. Yet God uses this same terminology, my son, when he refers to all of Israel. God instructs Moses to call Israel his firstborn son when he's speaking to Pharaoh in Exodus chapter 4. <clears throat> so this language here in Hosea 11.1 1 is referring to Israel as a nation being called out of Egypt, out of bondage into the promised land, referring to that nation, but it's also pointing forward to true Israel, Jesus Christ being called out of Egypt as a baby, fulfilling this prophecy and fulfilling the destiny of God's only begotten Son. And this also speaks to the fact that God is a loving, persistent Father to the people of Israel. That He didn't leave them in Egypt to languish, but delivered them with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, destroying Egypt in the process, bringing His people out of that powerful nation. And that's why you get some of the tender language that we see here in verse 3. Notice verse 3 again. Yet it was I who taught Ephraim to walk. I took them up by their arms, but they did not know that it was I that healed them. It's the Lord teaching them to walk, which is an odd metaphor for a nation, but it's not at all strange for a child. The picture here is of a parent helping an infant to walk, watching them fall, picking them back up, encouraging them, watching them take their first steps and growing in independence all the more from that day yet all the while clinging to their parents for support. Verse 4, we get a little bit of a different picture with cords of kindness and bands of love and easing the yoke on their jaws. We get the picture of a a farm animal 
which may sound a little strange, right, because we think of a farm animal as being kind of a, a work animal, but rather here, it's almost spoken of as if they're kind of a family pet. Taking them in, feeding them, comforting them, bending down to feed them, easing the yoke of their jaws. And there's that moment. You know, all parents, we all experience it. We've had experience, we've experienced it as children or are experiencing as children for some of you here when we need to rightly, or we need and rightly deserve discipline. As a parent, I know the difficulty of this, having to discipline a child, knowing it's for their good, yet wanting nothing but good for them, not wishing to see them undergo discipline at the same time. Knowing that discipline is good, but knowing that it feels bad for me to do that. It's this complex kind of emotion, right? That coming from me, coming from you, is flawed. Why? Because we're sinful. My children are sinful. But we see a glimpse of that, what's going on here, but we can't fully understand it. But from the Heavenly Father, this is perfect and true. It's right and a good kind of emotion. And so when we get to verses 5 and 6, we have to understand that we don't have this complete shift going on, but it's all encompassed. The Father who was teaching them to walk is also having to discipline them in love. Verses 5 and 6. They shall not return to the land of Egypt, but Assyria shall be their king, because they have refused to return to me. The sword shall rage against their cities, consume the bars of their gates, and devour them because of their own counsels. This is difficult. In the first few pictures, we kind of have this adorable picture of the baby's first steps, the parent and the child in this kind of harmony that you would hope would exist forever. But in verses 5 and 6, we have a rebellious child that needs discipline and the loving and just father carrying it out. I was a child, if you can imagine, that needed regular, firm discipline. And my mom would say to me, and she would say this, it's harder for me than it is for you. And I always thought, there's no way that that's true. That's just something parents say to take the sting away, right? They're just saying this to maybe make me feel better. But as a parent, I know it's real. And if it's real for me as a flawed human being, if it's real for you as a flawed parent, how much more for the Heavenly Father to feel this and to understand this? So we see the picture of the Father in anguish over his wayward child. It should help us to understand more the folly of our hearts that are prone to wander. And that brings us to the next point, the wayward children. Look with me again at verse 2. The more they were called, the more they went away. They kept sacrificing to the bales and burning and burning offerings to idols. So what's going on here? The people were called out of Egypt, out of slavery, out of captivity. They were told they were going to the promised land, a place flowing with milk and honey, a place that's set aside for the chosen people of God. Out of all the bad people in the world, right? There weren't good people. It wasn't as if 
there was this one group that had held it all together. Remember the Tower of Babel? They, they scattered them. And then right after that, we read in chapter 12 of Genesis that he goes to this pagan named Abraham and he says, go to the place that I will show you. Out of all the bad people, God looks at them and he says, mine. And it wasn't anything in them. It was because of him. And notice how they repay his infinite goodness and grace. The more they were called, the more they went away. They kept sacrificing to the bales and burning offerings to idols. As parents, I recognize this. When your kids get a little older, the kids that used to snuggle up to you, all of a sudden grow spikes and they don't want any of your affection. The kids that thought you were Superman now think that you're old and dumb. Remember thinking that with my parents, totally, till I was about 20 and started to see the world as an adult and immediately knew the error of my ways. And this is the way with many people, right? This is all of us. In fact, if this isn't us, this is there's probably something that we, we kind of missed a step, right? We have to we have to see that for ourselves. It's not something that you can teach someone. You can't say, hey, you really don't know anything at your, your age, and then say, oh, okay, all right, I'll just listen to you then. That's never happened once. It's just part of growing up. It's part of finding your independence. All the while, the parent is there while the child is kind of thrashing, teaching them to walk, taking them by the hands, healing them. But we know it's not the way with all children that coming back, we know that some stay away. Some know, some of you know this better than others. All of us have felt this in some way. A sibling, a cousin, a friend that just walked away and never came back. And in so many ways, there's something that we all have familiar. We all have to deal with this conflict at a varying level. We've all felt the sting, again, maybe of a child, a parent has walked away, a sibling, a friend, some kind of conflict like this that has caused someone to leave that shouldn't have left, and having to come to the realization that there is a place where you say to this friend or you say to this individual, I can go no farther with you. And you sense that idea coming from God in verse 7. My people are bent on turning away from me. And though they call out to the Most High, I mean, what's going to happen to them? Look at verse 6. The swords rage against their cities, consume the bars of their gates, devour them, and of course they're going to call out to God. My people are bent on turning away from me, and though they call out to the Most High, He shall not raise them up at all. He's going to let them experience this, this discipline, rather than relent. Working in pastoral ministry for 20 years, I've experienced this in a few times when a church has had to part ways with a member because of their being bent on turning away. Members living in unrepentant sin, members literally joining a cult, members causing continuous disunity of the body, and at some point, you have to say to them, we can go no farther with you. Jesus talks about this in Matthew 18. I strongly recommend this passage to you if you 
or dealing with conflict with family at all or friends. This Matthew 18 is a, is a wonderful passage for, for just understanding how we as believers should deal with this sort of conflict. Most important, we all have to see in ourselves that our best days are as former wayward sons and daughters. Because Jesus didn't find us on His doorstep dressed and ready for ministry. right? He didn't find us coming to our own senses. Okay, Jesus, I figured it out. I'm ready to listen to You now. He found us dead in our sins. Sons and daughters of disobedience. Children of wrath. And it's because of the love of an everlasting Father that we have been made alive together with Christ Jesus our Lord. And that brings us to the final point, the great homecoming. Look with me at verses 8 and 9. And understand what just he said, I'm not, he shall not raise them up at all at the end of verse 7 and verse 8. How can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I hand you over, O Israel? How can I make you like Adma? How can I treat you like Zeboim? My heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. I will not execute my burning anger. I will not destroy again destroy Ephraim. For I am God and not a man, the Holy One in your midst. I will not come in wrath. Again, considering the immediate context, these words are some of the most tender in the Bible coming from the Father. Watching the baby learn to walk, watching them walk away and experience discipline, and then saying, how can I give you up? It's the picture of, an, of the infinite mercy of God. It's the picture of a perfect father. What kind of father walks away from his children? Humanly speaking, some of you have experienced that in one degree or another. Because people are sinful. Sometimes dads leave. Sometimes moms leave. Sometimes they leave because of selfishness. Sometimes they leave because of death. Sometimes divorce makes it seem as if they are gone. Whatever the case, it's likely that most of you have experienced this at some level. But understand, brothers and sisters in Christ, in Christ, the Father looks at us and says, how can I give you up? I will not execute my burning anger. I will not again destroy Ephraim. But how could he possibly say this? Right? Maybe we get to this point in Hosea 11 verse 8 and verse 9. How can we, you know, how can we, how could he say this? We know God's character, right? How could he say that he's not going to do it? As an earthly father, I understand how I can say that. When when my children sin, I know exactly how I can say, how can I give you up? It's not hard. Right? I watch them come into the world. I watch them take their first breath. I watch them grow and thrive. The Lord's grace in my life has seen fit that I've been able to see my children do just that. And even though they aren't perfect, there's no way that I can give them up. None. But for the Heavenly Father, it isn't that easy. Not because He's not perfect, but because He is. 
He can't deal with the sin of his people in no other way but punishment. And that punishment is only one thing. It's death. There is no remission of sin without the shedding of blood. Those are his words. No goat or sheep blood would do it for the sins of the people. It should cost each one of us our very lives for all eternity. But it's the love of a heavenly father who made a way. Even while we were yet dead in our trespasses and our sins, he made us alive together in Christ Jesus our Lord. And it's because Jesus never strayed. It's because Jesus doesn't fit the mold of this child here in Hosea 11 that I can be treated as if I had never strayed. Because I only ever sinned. Because I've only ever known sin. Jesus is treated on the cross as if he had only ever sinned. He who knew no sin He who knew no sin became sin that we might become the righteousness of God. So when the Father says here in verse 9 that I will not execute my burning anger, understand that He will not execute it on you. Instead, He executed His burning anger on His only Son, Jesus. And Jesus says that we need only call upon His name to be saved. That if we believe this gospel message, that if we believe that he is the ransom for our sin debt, then we can be saved. And if you have not done that this morning, if you are still trusting in your own righteousness, then indeed God will look at you one day and says, say, I will execute my burning anger. Rather than meet him in that way and said, call upon the name of Jesus Christ and be saved. For those of us in Him, we are a blessed people. Every provision, every mercy has been given us. A place is being prepared for us even now. So brothers and sisters in Christ, let us not act as if we are spoiled children. But instead, let us turn to the Father in love and affection, showing Him gratitude for the things that He has given us. The Lord will never stop pursuing us, His people. But let's not have Him run far to find us. Let us draw near while we can. Let us continue to place our hope in the One who stayed the Father's anger and said, I will never give you up. Let's go to Him in prayer. Our Lord Jesus, we are thankful that it's in You and You alone that the Father can say, How Can I give you up? Oh, we pray that we would be drawn closer to you. That we would show the love and affection that has been shown us so much that we would no longer go away when we are called, but we would come. Lord, draw us closer. Teach us more and more your ways that we might follow in them. We pray this in Jesus' holy name. Amen.